of Moses' uh, message in Deuteronomy is simply this. God loves his children, and his children are to love him. That's right. Maybe we'll try that again in the future. Uh, So study up. Moses was God's great servant who led Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land of Canaan. God gathered his people on the edge of the Jordan and used Moses to remind his people of his gracious dealings with them in the past and of his good commands. Throughout the book of of Deuteronomy, we have heard Moses say over and over and over again that the people must cross the Jordan, they must conquer the Canaanites in the power of God, and they must keep God's commands. It may come as no surprise to you, but this morning as we study Deuteronomy 11, Moses will say virtually the same thing to Israel as he has said in the previous 10 chapters. Now to be fair, uh, each time Moses has delivered this message to the people of Israel, he has elucidated different motivations and encouragements with respect to this call to obedience and love for God. And Moses takes that very same approach in chapter 11. If you recall our study of Deuteronomy chapters 9 and 10 from last week, then you'll know that Moses effectively summarized his teaching by holding out God's petition for Israel to love, trust, and obey him in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 12 to 22. To put it more succinctly, God said to Israel, give me your heart. Well, in Deuteronomy 11, that petition from God, that call for Israel to give God their heart. That petition from God continues. It's even transformed into a pressing choice that Israel must make. I want to show you this in the text. So just skip down toward the end of Deuteronomy chapter 11. Take a look there at verses 26 to 28. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Look at verse 26 to 28. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. See, this is where chapter 11 is headed. Moses wants to impress upon Israel the choice that he is setting before them. They may choose obedience and blessing, or they may choose Rebellion, disobedience, and curse. The choices theirs to make. Right now, we, we, we don't feel the, the proper weight of that choice, and that's because we haven't fully considered what leads up to it. But this is where we're headed. Like Israel, we, you and I, here this morning, we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. We can either choose the obedience of faith, as the Apostle Paul calls it in Romans chapter 16, verse 26, Or we can choose disobedience. Faith in Christ leads to the blessing of being with Jesus forever in the promised land of heaven. But disobedience leads to eternal self-conscious torment under the wrath of God who is a consuming fire. We're going to study Deuteronomy chapter 11 in four sections under four headings. One, God's curse on his enemies. Two, God's care for the promised land. Three, God's call to obedience, and for Israel's choice of blessing or curse. Those four points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first point. I'll repeat each of those points as we make our way through. Let's begin with our first point. God's curse on his enemies. Please follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 11. Let's start at the beginning, verse 1 to verse 7. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 1 to 7. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land. And what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots. How he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you. And how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, sons of Reuben. How the earth 
opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. So as chapter 11 opens, we are reminded once again of God's constant call for the people of Israel to, to love God, to love the God who first loved them. Israel's love, as it's often explained in the scriptures, is demonstrated through obedience to God's laws. Our obedience to God reveals our love for God. We love because he first loved us, as 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 tells us. After this call to love and obedience, Moses calls the people to consider the discipline of the Lord, his greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds. And when Moses calls the people of Israel to consider the discipline and deeds of the Lord, he is calling them to remember how God has cursed his enemies. We should be careful to note that these enemies, they were foreign and domestic. Egypt was an enemy of God, but so were some within Israel. Egypt is cast as an enemy there in verses 2 through 4, but we will come upon some enemies of God within Israel in verses 5 and 6. And I want to clue you into a historical and kind of a structural factor here. You should notice in verses 2 and 7, kind of the top and the tail of these verses, Moses underscores for his hearers that their eyes have seen these accursed enemies. Moses' hearers were children when they left Egypt. They were children when God poured out the plagues upon Egypt. They were children when they saw the walls of water come tumbling down on Pharaoh's army. Consider the scope and the totality of God's judgment. Verse 3, to all his land. And when Yahweh cursed Egypt's army, he crushed their horses and their chariots too. From their walk out of Egypt in their youth until now, the children of Israel have been learning that in his just judgment, God curses and punishes the wicked. As they walked in the wilderness and and grew up, they witnessed God's discipline and curse upon his enemies within the nation of Israel too. See, in verse 6, Moses mentions there Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and how, how the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up. No wonder these deeds are called, uh, are described by the miraculous term signs. The story of Dathan and Abiram, it appears in Numbers chapter 16. Uh, what evil had they committed? What vile and vicious sin had they committed that they, and notice this, and their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in all the midst of Israel, what thing had they done that should lead the Lord to make the earth open up its mouth and swallow them? What sin deserves to be cursed like that? What did they do? They complained. I suspect that each one of us here this morning has complained this past week. Uh, Perhaps even today. Uh, And just so you know, you've got good grounds for a prayer of confession and a prayer of thanks now. Lord, I confess that I was wrong to complain. Forgive me for Christ's sake. Lord, I thank you that you did not open up the ground from under my feet. Lord, I thank you that Christ Jesus has borne my curse for my complaining. Dathan and Abiram complained. They also held Moses in contempt and contested his leadership of the people of God. If you were to go back and read this account in Numbers chapter 16, you would find that the whole people of Israel, they were gathered around together. And those who did not side with Dathan and Abiram, they were instructed to to step back, to, to walk away from these men. Imagine being a child in Israel and having your parent pull your hand and drag you back away from them. Only to just a minute later see the earth open up and swallow them whole. You know, children, they have wonderful imaginations. But this wasn't a story they had to make up. It was a true story. It really happened. A story that no doubt they had burned into their memories. What's the point of all this? What's the point of these stories of God's enemies, foreign and domestic, receiving his judgment and curse? In the words of one scholar, Eugene Merrill, those listening to Moses could not plead either ignorance or lack of personal accountability. What they had experienced should have provided the highest motivation to loving response and obedience. 
That's the point of recalling these curses. Moses wants to impress upon his hearers the dangers of disobedience, the the dangers of being an enemy of God. It leads to death. It always has. It has from the very beginning. God will curse his enemies, and they will suffer his judgment. What about us? What does this have to do with you and me? I mean, we're not the Old Testament people of God. We're not, we're not Old Testament Israel. Can, can we really say that we have seen God's greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm? I think that we can. Often we forget the miracle of conversion. We, we forget how God is mighty to save. We forget how he conquers rebel hearts, overthrows the onslaught of Satan, and rescues sinners from judgment. Regeneration. Causing someone to be born again into a living hope is a sovereign saving act of God. It is a miracle that God performs in bringing the spiritually dead to life in Jesus Christ. We see God's greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm when he saves sinners like you and me. If we are living in Christ and alive by the Spirit, we are walking miracles of the living God. But this is mainly about God cursing his enemies, isn't it? And some within his own house. That's instructive to us, I think, as the New Testament people of God. Our brother John is going to preach next week from 2 Peter chapter 2, where there are false teachers among the people of God. We need that warning today. We've got to remember that sometimes enemies of God can be found among the people of God. We could begin to look around and be suspicious, suspicious of others, and of each other, but let me suggest that we look inside our own hearts first. Uh, the, the writer to the Hebrews wisely addressed New Testament believers saying, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So what should we do? We should examine our own hearts and see if they're unbelieving. We should exhort one another to keep believing, to keep trusting, to keep following the Lord Jesus. We need one another. And as we encourage one another and build each other up, what we are doing is preventative care in each other's hearts. We're helping each other not to become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The only way to be sure that you're not an enemy of God is to place your whole hope in his son, Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus, and you will live. Help others look to him too. Help them live, and so escape God's curse. God's curse on his enemies is immediately contrasted with his care for the promised land of Canaan. Let's turn now and consider our second point. God's care for the promised land. Please follow along as I I read Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 8 to 17. Here in verses 8 to 17, we see God's care for the promised land. Verse 8. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey, For the land that you are entering to take possession of, it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven. A land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord Your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside to serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. 
as, as I'm sure you observe as we read through these verses, the call to obedience and the keeping of God's commands remains constant. Uh, verses 8 to 13 are particularly clear on that point. But did you notice, uh, did you take note of why Moses called for obedience there in verse 8? He gave Israel two reasons for obedience in verses 8 and 9. Strength and length. Uh, somehow, their obedience is tied to the strength and length of their lives. So, keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that, it's a purpose clause, that you may be strong. And then skipping down to verse 9, and that you may live long. On the one hand, Israel was receiving the gift of the promised land of Canaan due to God's gracious covenant with Abraham. Uh, all that Israel is about to receive, they will receive because God is keeping the promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And at the end of the day, there was nothing that Israel had done to receive this gracious gift from God. Still, Israel was obligated, duty-bound, because they were God's chosen, holy, and loved people. They were obligated to respond to his grace with obedience. And as Moses begins to describe the land, he describes it in such a way that would have been incredibly inviting and motivating to those who had been traveling through the desert for 40 years. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. Say goodbye to manna and water from rocks. The land is even far superior to what they had experienced in Egypt. You know, one of the sad truths, if you were to read through kind of Israel's wilderness wanderings, one of the sad truths as they wandered through the wilderness is they, they often said, you know what, we're done with this. We want to go back to Egypt. But look at how the promised land is described. It's not like the land of Egypt. In, in Egypt, Israel had to sow seed and irrigate it. In other words, they had to carry water from the river to the crops. In fact, many of you ha probably have a little uh, footnote in your text next to the word like irrigated it. In your Bibles, it, it probably says something like in the Hebrew, it means watered it with your feet. Uh, and the idea here is that Israel had to transport water by foot. Imagine having to transport water not only for your nation, but also for the nation who possessed you as slaves. It's a lot of people to feed. That's a lot of crops to water. But, verse 11 tells us, the land that Israel is now going over to possess is a land completely different. Where Egypt had nothing but brown, flat, dry land, the promised land, has beautiful hills and valleys. Where Egypt's crops had to be watered by foot, God waters the promised land by rain from heaven. Verse 12 tells us why. Because God cares for this land. Think about this. God has been caring and preparing this land for his people. He's been doing it for at least 40 years. The length of his love for his people has no end. And he even shows his love for Israel in tending this garden promised land. It doesn't go a day in the year without his watchful care, as verse 12 makes plain. Verses 13 to 15 reveal that God's care will continue throughout the land if the people of Israel obey his commands. Not only will God bless the land, but he'll also bless the livestock. God will be gracious and generous. But verse 16 ushers in a word of warning that we've seen before in the book of Deuteronomy. Fullness can lead to forgetfulness. Israel needs to be on guard against forgetting Yahweh. And so turning to worship and serve other gods, the gods of Canaan. And this, no doubt, would have been a real temptation for Israel. As the gods of Canaan were presented as those who controlled the, the rain and thus the fertility of the land. Here we have a direct claim from Yahweh. No, no, no. It's not the gods of Canaan who control the rain. Yahweh controls the rain. He cares for the land. If Israel were to turn away from God, God would turn away from them. And the blessing that he intends to continue to pour out upon the promised land. So, so wait. If, does this mean that if I obey God, I'll be materially blessed? Well, that's kind of the wrong question. It speaks, it almost speaks of a, a greater love for the things of this world than the God who made the world. Uh, the truth is that God is worthy of our obedience because he's the author of our lives. The truth is he owes us nothing but hell. The, the truth is that the sweep of scripture also teaches us that many people obeyed God and yet suffered. And we need only think of Jesus, right? 
many people in Scripture obeyed God and yet suffered. They, they didn't receive the apparent blessings of God. Go and read the Psalms and, and you'll find the saints of old suffering. They lament that they've obeyed and yet they suffer. Sometimes they're even crying out to God saying, come on, the, the wicked prosper. What, what's going on here? And Jesus, he tells his disciples that if they obey him and follow him, they'll suffer. We've got to be careful not to read God's word in a, a wooden manner. Sometimes it is true that material blessings accompany obedience. Yes, sometimes diligent work is rewarded through material blessing. But the truth is that the greatest blessings of our obedience to God, what, what, what comes with it is not material, but spiritual. If you obey the Lord Jesus Christ from the heart, I promise you, you will better know the sweetness of the fellowship with God. You may physically suffer for it along the way, but no one can rob you of the joy of communion with God from your heart. And I think that those who were there listening to Moses knew that there was a great blessing beyond even that of the promised land of Canaan. See, even those blessings of that land that God would surely pour out, even those blessings, they pointed to something greater. Those who were listening to Moses with hearts full of faith, believing the promises of God, those listening to Moses knew that they were going to receive a good land, a, a blessed land, a land that God especially cared for, and yet they knew that that land was nothing compared to what God would give his people in the promised land of heaven. Do you know how I know that God's people uh, were hearing this description of the promised land and longing for an even better country, a, a heavenly one? Because that's what the New Testament teaches us. That's what the New Testament tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Listen as I read that passage. After mentioning Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah, the writer of the Hebrews says this. These, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Notice how broadly that becomes. On the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking at a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. Well, what country is that? Well, the writer of the Hebrews goes on. He says, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, children of Abraham, those who have the faith of Abraham, who believe the promises of God, and those standing there listening to Moses preach, would have been astounded by God's gift of the promised land of Canaan. And still, they would have been astounded by God's gift of the promised land of that heavenly city, that heavenly country that God was promising. They would have been longing for that place. Think of how God cared for Canaan in these verses. And think about the course of Israel's history and how they spoiled the land with their idolatry. Now think about how God will so care for the new heavens and the new earth. And think about how it can never be spoiled by sin. Obey him now. Start living today how you will live with him for all eternity. In fact, obedience is what we turn to consider next. So, having thought about God's curse on his enemies and his care for the promised land, let's turn now and consider our third point, God's call to obedience. Please follow along as I read Deuteronomy uh, chapter 11, verse 18 uh, to 25. Begin there in verse 18. This is God's call to obedience. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. And you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. 
Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. The call to obedience is not a mechanical duty. It is a call to express our love for God from the heart. These words of mine, Moses says there in verse 18, are to be laid up or stored up like treasure in the heart. They are to fill our souls. They are to fill the souls of the people of Israel so that every thought, every word, every deed embodies the love of God in the world. And notice how personal this is supposed to be. Let those words, your heart, sink in. This isn't for other people. It's Moses looking the people of Israel in the eye. And he's saying to you, this isn't for other people. This is for you. This is for you. Moses says it to each individual Israelite. Let this sink into your heart. Remember, the people of Israel were to be a, a distinct witness to the nations that surrounded them. They were to be living examples of what it meant to love God and live for him. They were living testimonies of what it meant to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. They would do this individually, but collectively they would also form a corporate witness too. I'm amazed at Moses' description of where his words are to be in their lives. If you trace out verses 18 and 19, you can see that his words are to be on their hearts, in their hands, in their heads, and on their home and in their homes in every aspect of the lives of the people of Israel was to be filled with Moses words which were really God's words because they were the commands that he had given to Moses you see verses 18 and 19 are really a recapitulation of what we learned in Deuteronomy chapter 6 Moses is repeating his teaching and stop and think about this when a preacher repeats something it must be important in fact, if he says it twice in the same sermon, which Moses is doing, because this is his second sermon in the book, and this is the second time he said it within this same sermon, Moses is repeating this twice. He must want his hearers to catch it. When Moses turns to focus on the home in verses 19 and 20, what he is trying to communicate is that the truth about God is to be passed down to subsequent generations, and that the children of Israel are to be taught that Yahweh is God and God alone. Everywhere, at every time, every day. The children of Israel are to be taught this truth about God from the moment they open their eyes and begin their day until they close them and fall asleep. They're to be taught the truth about God every place they go. Now let's just pause and meditate on this and apply it to our own lives. Moses begins with a heart, doesn't he? If if, if God's word is not internalized, then it won't be externalized in our lives. God's word must be on or in the hands of God's people. Now, this had some practical manifestations, same with being on their heads, had some practical manifestation in the lives of ancient Israelites that we're really not going to go into right now. Right now, I'm just, I just want us to meditate on this conceptually, that God's word is to be in our hearts, in our hands, uh, on our heads and in our homes. I, I simply want us to realize that if God's word is to be on our hearts, we've got to have it open in our hands. We, we've got to read it and meditate on it. That's how it gets into our heads. Unless it's in our hearts and heads, it won't be in our homes, and it won't be on our lips as we make our way out into the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is God's word in your hands regularly? Is it open in your hands? Many of us, I, I hope, uh, have Bibles in our home. Do, do we read them? If you don't have a Bible, we have some here that we'd love to give to you. Find me at the, the door after the service. I'd love to give you a Bible. We want you to have a Bible. Do we have our Bibles open? And do, do we read them? For months, I've been talking uh, off and on with various members of the congregation about my concern for, for Bible literacy. Uh, this past week, I read an article about the subject, and it pointed out that according to a research study conducted in uh, 2014, and I'm quoting from the article now, 
only 45% of those who regularly attend church, 45% of those who regularly attend church, read the Bible more than once a week. Over 40% of the people attending are reading their Bibles occasionally, maybe once or twice a month, if at all. In fact, 18% of attenders say they never read the Bible. Moses called the people of Israel, particularly the parents of Israel, to pass on God's commandments to their children. The plain reality is that if we are going to pass on God's truth to others, it has to be in our hearts and in our minds, and that means it has to be open in our hands. As Augustine once said, tolo lege, take up and read. Uh, and let me just pause and say something to those of you who are discouraged and feeling guilty for your lack of Bible reading. Perhaps you've been asking other prayers, uh, other people to pray for you in that. Let me just give you a word of encouragement. Your Father in heaven loves you. Your Father in heaven loves you. Tomorrow is a new day. You can feel guilty about the past, or you can realize that tomorrow is a new day. Tomorrow is a new day. And you can make a different choice tomorrow than the one you made yesterday or last week. Don't underestimate the gracious gift of God of a new day. Now, appended to this uh, comprehensive call to obey God's word, to see his commands come to expression in every space and place in the lives of the people of Israel is a promise. That promise is found in verses 22 to 25. See, verse 22 begins with, if you will be careful to do all of this commandment, and then verse 25 ends with, as he promised you. What did God promise? He promised complete and total victory. Complete and comprehensive commitment to the commands would be connected to the complete conquest of Canaan. Does this mean that Israel earned the gift of the promised land because of their commitment to God's commands? No, it was already coming to them as a grace gift from God because of the pre-existing covenant commitment to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not only this, but as we see in these verses, and as we've seen before in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord will drive out these nations. Does this mean that their obedience or disobedience didn't matter? No, it, it mattered a lot. Obedience would be met with blessing, and disobedience would be met with curse. God's divine, sovereign, and unilateral grace never obliterates the need for obedience. God's divine, sovereign, and unilateral grace never obliterates the need for obedience. God's divine, sovereign, and unilateral grace is that which impels, motivates, and encourages us to choose obedience. To choose the blessing over the curse. A choice must be made. And this is what we turn now to consider in Deuteronomy chapter 11 verses 26 to 32. Our final point is entitled Israel's choice of blessing or curse. Israel's choice of blessing or curse. Let's read verses 26 to 32 now. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today, to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites, who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak of Morah? For you are to cross over the Jordan, to go in, take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. I should hope that Israel's choice is obvious to us all. The choice before Israel is a choice between blessing and curse, between obedience and disobedience, between the worship of Yahweh and the false gods of Canaan. As we read, or as we read, I wonder if the word today caught your eye and ear. Moses used that word four times in these verses. 
Moses was setting this choice before Israel today. A choice, a decision was being impressed upon them as they stood there and as they listened to Moses. In our modern sensibilities, we don't like it when we're pressured to make a decision or choice in an exact moment. So uh, just this past week, I experienced this. There was a door-to-door salesman who, who came by and was asking me to sign up for something that very moment. What's a, what's a good email address for you? What's a, what's a good phone number for you? And he was assuring me as he was doing that that I wasn't making any kind of decision right there and then. Actually, choosing to sign up for something is a decision. It's a small one, even if it's not the final one. Uh, I didn't like being uh, pressured to make a decision, so I politely kind of sent him on his way. Moses, though, is no salesman. He's God's spokesman. So an answer must be given. And he is quite clearly demanding a decision today. And here we must recognize that refusing to choose is a decision by default. How many times has that happened in our lives? We've not made a decision, and actually an outcome still emerges. Yes, refusing to choose is a choice in and of itself. Not only was Israel to choose this day whom they would serve, but they were even to memorialize their decision once they got into the land. That's what verses 29 and 30 are all about. All about Th- These verses, they envision this ceremony on these two mountains in which Israel publicly proclaims their choice. And I love how Moses is just so specific of where these mountains are located. Just so you know, it's right here. I'm going to give you geographic directions so that you can make sure that you carry out this ceremony, that you memorialize your choice of whether or not you will serve me, whether or not you will choose blessing or curse. Yes, and that they would have this ceremony in the future implies not only that they would have to choose today, but they would have to choose in the days ahead, right? Say they get into the promised land that the Lord had cleared out the nations, they could refuse to memorialize their choice, right? They could choose and they could decide to say to themselves, you know what, we, we don't want to do that whole blessing curse thing on those mountains. Uh, we just want to get on with our lives in this lovely land. Israel had to choose that day and every day following whether or not they would serve the Lord and keep his commandments. Disobedience doesn't occur in the blink of an eye. We, we don't wake up one day and say to ourselves, you know what, today I'm going to disobey. No, it begins small, but it slowly grows. And it grows incrementally throughout our days. The truth is we must choose afresh each day. We must choose blessing or curse. Now, I I suspect that something has been bothering you about Deuteronomy 11. If not, something should have been bothering you about Deuteronomy 11. If you look back up at verse 17, you'll notice that Israel was threatened with the loss of the land should they choose disobedience. In other words, they were threatened with curse. Uh, Looking back, even at the first seven verses of the chapter, we can now see that maybe there was something too. Maybe there was something more to Moses choosing a few men from Israel as examples of God's curse on God's enemies. Can the land really be lost? Can the promises of God be lost? If you were to keep reading through the history of Israel, you would find that Israel eventually chose disobedience. And because of their disobedience, they endured the curse of the exile. They worshiped false gods. They set up idols. They turned away. And they were thrust out of the promised land. Like Adam and Eve were thrust out of the Garden of Eden for their disobedience. So the people of Israel were thrust out of the land of Canaan. But do you know what the prophets reveal? The prophets reveal that the exile still continued even after Israel returned to the land. See, the final chapter of Nehemiah reveals that Israel had gone back Once they were back in the land, they had gone back to flouting God's command. They were desecrating the Sabbath. And Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, opens with priests despising God's name, offering polluted food on the altar, and offering deformed animals for sacrifices. In other words, Israel was still choosing disobedience, and therefore still worthy of curse. See, as the New Testament opens, the exile is still going on. Their hearts were far from God. The truth is, 
That is what every human chooses apart from God's grace. Every human chooses disobedience apart from God's grace. We can't keep the whole commandment, which is what Moses has been telling them they must keep. You, you must keep not just a part, but the whole. We can't keep all of the laws that are listed in the Pentateuch. We need someone to keep the law for us and so fully and finally secure the promised land of heaven, that land which the land of Canaan pointed toward. This is why God himself took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus kept the whole commandment of God. He kept the whole commandment so that we can come to possess the promised land of heaven. Jesus loved God the Father, verse 13. He served him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He chose obedience every step of the way. He chose it every day, every moment of every day. He served him with all of his heart. He was without sin, and still, he was cursed. He, he died on the cross, and Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 tells us that cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Why was Jesus cursed when he was obedient? Jesus was cursed because he was bearing the curse that our sins deserve. You see, because of our disobedience, we deserve to have the eternal anger of the Lord kindled against us. Verse 7. Yet while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Jesus Christ died for us. We deserve to, be, to eternally perish because of our sin and disobedience. But Jesus, in his death on the cross, Jesus took the punishment that our sins deserve. So the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus become a curse for us? Paul goes on, so that the blessing, interesting choice of word there, Paul, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, it is because Jesus received our curse that we can receive God's blessing. And three days after Jesus' death on the cross, he was raised from the grave, proving to us all that he has secured eternal life in the promised land of heaven. And even now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. We too have a choice of blessing and curse before us today. Either we can personally bear the curse of God for our sin and disobedience, or we can turn from our sin, trust in Jesus, and receive the blessing of eternal life. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to choose blessing today. God's word has set before you a blessing and a curse you choose blessing, and there's irony in this, I, I know. You choose blessing by confessing that you've been disobedient. You choose blessing by confessing that you're worthy of curse. You choose blessing by confessing that like Adam and Israel and everyone else in the world, that you've not kept God's law and that you're worthy of God's curse. You choose blessing not only by confessing that you're a sinner and a rebel against God, but also by confessing that your only hope is in Jesus Christ, the only one who kept the whole law of God. Believe that Jesus lived for you the obedient, commandment-keeping life that you have not lived. Believe that Jesus died for you, bearing your sin and your curse in his body on the tree. Believe that Jesus was raised again from the grave three days after his death. Believe that since Jesus was welcomed into God's presence, into God the Father's presence, that you too will be welcomed into the Father's presence for all eternity. Look to Jesus in faith and live. And if you want to know more about what it means to receive God's blessing through Jesus Christ, please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news in Jesus. As we conclude, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to remind you that like the Israelites had to choose blessing and obedience each day, so we too have to choose Christ each day. God curses his enemies. So love the Lord. God cared for the promised land. And Jesus has gone ahead to prepare a place for us to extend his care. So prepare for that place with him.
God called Israel to obedience, and Jesus has done the same with us. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Even as we rest in his obedience for our salvation, so we obey to display our love for him and his love for the world. Choose Jesus today. That choice is before you today. Choose him gladly. And if the Lord should give us life and breath tomorrow, choose him tomorrow and choose him always. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you curse your enemies. We give you thanks that Christ was cursed for us and for our sins and for our salvation. We give you thanks that you care for the promised land and that you delight to call us home to yourself. Oh, Father, until you do, give us strength to obey. Remind us of all that Christ has done for us. And so help us out of gratitude for your grace to live obedient lives unto Jesus. Help us each day through the work of your spirit to choose Jesus Christ and follow him all the days of our lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, our final song is entitled, By Faith. It can be found in the insert in your bulletin. Let me encourage you to, to pull that out. It's a, a two-page insert. Two. This morning from God's Word... A choice has been set before us, a choice to, to follow the Lord Jesus and to rest in God's blessed favor because of Jesus, or a choice to remain under the wrath of God. Through this song, we, we actually announce our choice to the world. We choose to walk by faith. We choose to believe the promises of God. We choose to fix our eyes on Jesus, our soul's reward. We choose Jesus. So let's sing by faith. Please stand as we sing. By faith we see the hand of God In the light of creation's grand design In the lives of those who prove His faithfulness Who walk by faith and not by sight We will stand as children of the promise we will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we walk by faith and not by sight. By faith our fathers roamed the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts. Of a holy city built by God's own hand. A place where peace and justice reign. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. By faith the prophets saw a day when the long-for Messiah would appear with the power to break the chains of sin and death and rise triumphant from the grave. We will stand as children of the promise. 
We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. By faith the church was called to go. In the power of the Spirit to the lost, to deliver captives and to preach good news in every corner of the earth. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on Him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sign. By faith this mountain shall be moved, and the power of the gospel shall prevail. For we know in Christ all things are possible for all who call upon his name. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. Amen. I pray that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.